Welcome back to World History Class with Mr. Lutz, where today's focus will be on the colonization of Latin America. You've already heard about this on our first episode of the unit, but today we'll narrow our focus to the Spanish and Portuguese conquest and then really turn and focus on the administration of colonial government in Latin America, as well as its reform and its impact on the economy of the region and society at large. But before we dig into the key concept connections, I, I want to reestablish our setting by placing this chapter and its focus into the broader historical context for two reasons. First of all, this will help you to further appreciate, again, what we mean by contextualizing. It's been a theme of this unit so far. And secondly, it's going to help you understand how the developments taking place in Latin America make sense because they're grounded within a larger picture that helps to shape the course of history in this region during this particular time period. So beginning with Spain, we see that during the 15th century, the Reconquista was beginning to take place where Ferdinand of Aragon and his wife, Isabella of Castile, are driving out both Islamic and Jewish influence in Spain with the intent of establishing it as a firmly Christian kingdom. By the conclusion of the century, the program is concluded with the conquest of Granada, which was the last Muslim kingdom in the region. And as a result, Ferdinand and Isabella are going to be able to focus their energies on other programs, primarily seeking that sea route to the Indies that will help them to further engage in global trade. This, of course, as we know by now, results in the voyages of Columbus, who stumbled his way into, as you know, quote unquote, discovering new lands for the Spanish in the Americas. As for the Portuguese, it's geography, if you recall, that shaped their actions in moving toward colonizing the land known today as Brazil. We've already discussed the Portuguese starting to venture out into the Atlantic during the 13th and 14th centuries, starting to establish some sugar plantations on the Atlantic islands of the Azores and Madeira in order to meet that growing European sugar demand. And by the early 15th century, Prince Henry the Navigator helped promote more and more voyages to link trade with West Africa, to expand Christian alliances against the Muslims, possibly even gain new converts to Christianity. All of these Portuguese developments are going to culminate in Vasco da Gama's successful rounding of the Cape of Good Hope and making it all the way to that port city of Calicut in India in 1498, where then the Portuguese could start to cultivate trade relations there. Two years later, Pedro Alvarez de Cabral, while en route to India, sailed off course, stopped off in Brazil, and shortly thereafter, the Portuguese would come to declare Brazil as their own colony. In order for the Portuguese and the Spanish to respect their individual claims in the Atlantic and in the Indian Ocean as well, the Treaty of Tordesillas was established, and this divided the realms of conquest for the two lands. So long as the lands agreed to be split were not already under Christian control, the Portuguese and the Spanish had the right to colonize these lands. Uh, This dividing line basically splits through part of South America, granting Brazil, basically the coastal areas, to the Portuguese and the rest of the continent to Spain. The Portuguese, on the other hand, are going to be given extensive access to the West African coast and the Indian Ocean Basin. So as we can see, the conquest of the Americas is shaped by the larger processes of national stability in Western Europe, glowing global trade, 
and of course the relative inaccessibility for the nations of the Iberian Peninsula, that's Spain and Portugal, and the growing desire to spread Christianity as it clashed with the forces of Islam. And with that being said, we can finally move on to those key concept connections. So as we move ahead into the key concept connections, what I want to do here is really clarify what we're going to focus on here. We're going to start with talking about how the Spanish took control of Latin America, and from there we'll talk about how do they establish the political institutions there, how do they restructure colonial society, how do they integrate this region and themselves into the global economy, and how do they reform in the face of changing times. So beginning with conquest. From the beginnings of this era that we've already seen in an earlier chapter, the Spanish are beginning to assert their control over the local Arawak or Taino people by establishing the fort of Santo Domingo on the island of Hispaniola, which of course is modern-day Haiti and the Dominican Republic, that island. Although these lands don't offer the amount of riches in terms of spices that Columbus had originally set out for, the Spanish are eventually going to find a use for these lands. They're going to attempt to mine the region for as much gold as they could find there, and they do this by utilizing the Arawaks as their laborers. The original system of labor that was used in the Americas during this time is known as the encomienda, and it gives Spanish settlers, who were known as encomenderos, the ability to order natives to work at their command. In exchange, the responsibility was supposed to fall under the encomendero to provide safety and security, and convert the natives to Christianity. But in all honesty, under this encomienda system, native labor is often just exploited for very little in return. And you'll recall in that earlier episode, we talked about that book, Lies My Teacher Told Me, where the encomienda system was talked about resulting in cruel punishment, often leading to despair among native populations, to rebellion, as well as the diminished population among the Arawaks. And and native resistance to Spanish exploitation, though, in all honesty, it's made difficult by the spread of epidemic disease, particularly smallpox. This disease had originally made its way into the Caribbean by the early 16th century, and it led to the Spanish going on raiding parties to find more laborers for use under the encomienda. So by the mid-16th century, what we're going to see is the Arawaks are pretty much all but wiped out, and Spanish sites are eventually going to look beyond the Caribbean, And they're going to begin to set their focus on the Valley of Mexico and South America. So from here, we start talking about the conquistadors of Spain and their encountering of more highly developed agricultural civilizations of the Americas that we had discussed even back in period three. And for as strong and as powerful as we talked about the Aztecs particularly, as well as the Incas being at various points in their history, their subjugation of neighboring peoples really hindered their ability to fight off the Spanish because these people wanted to see the Aztecs and the Incas brought down. And so the Spanish, although being heavily outnumbered, will exploit these divisions to their own advantage. So first we talk with Hernan Cortez, and Hernan Cortez begins the conquest of the Aztec Empire in the Valley of Mexico, starting out with 450 of his own men, marching on the capital city of Tenochtitlan in 1519, where they take the emperor, Montezuma II, and eventually he is going to die in battles between the two sides. Cortes was unable to take the capital 
until he held it under siege in 1521. Now, traditional sources like to credit above all else, and we've seen this in class already, the use of Spanish guns, horses, cannons, and steel swords as the ultimate difference makers. And they do matter. But just summing it up to these factors is problematic because what it does by saying that is it underemphasizes the role played by native allies to the Spanish who provided them with thousands of soldiers with knowledge of the terrain and bases of support as the conquistadors moved on to Tenochtitlan. Also, of course, smallpox wreaked havoc on the Aztec population and diminished any type of ability for the Aztecs to put up significant resistance against such impossible oppositional forces. Ignoring that larger context beyond Spanish technologies, all that's going to do is simplify the event and what it does ultimately, and I think this is the most problematic thing, it strips the natives of any type of what we call contingency. And what we mean by that is their ability to act upon the events and influence history. If you just leave it up to Spanish technology, you deny the natives of taking any kind of role in playing an influential factor in these historical developments. So, much like Cortez, Francisco Pizarro takes several hundred conquistadors into South America in 1530 to take control of the Inca Empire. Inca society at this time is massively characterized by hostility against their leadership as people are growing tired of Inca taxes and control, not to mention the spread of epidemic disease, starting to prepare the region for easier conquest, and once again that situation for Spain is made easier because there's disputes going on down here, primarily between two brothers, Huascar and Atahualpa over succession to the Inca throne, which led to civil war that was still going on as the Spaniards, led by Pizarro, are just getting into the region. And the Spanish had kind of taken advantage of the situation, and they're going to bring some influential leaders of the Inca together to negotiate what the Inca believed was to be a supposed peace. But instead, the Spanish used this meeting as a way to bring these men, men together and to kill many of them. Now, Atahualpa, who had only recently captured and killed his brother, would be spared only for the purposes of him bringing the Spanish a room full of gold. After this, he did it. Atahualpa was killed, and the Spanish would eliminate pockets of resistance throughout the region until they had full control of it by 1540. So now that we've established Cortez and Pizarro's control of the Americas, we're going to start to get into the establishment of political institutions so at first, colonial Spain is controlled by the troops who had served under those two conquistadors. But by 1570, the Spanish government had begun to establish a little bit more of a formalized political institution in the Americas. Um, Mexico City and Lima, Peru are going to become the two centers of Spanish imperial control. And each of these regions are going to be controlled by a viceroy. So they're going to be known as viceroyalties. And this viceroy is, is a noble who was appointed by the crown. These viceroys are responsible for the military and the legal affairs, but their powers are going to be held in check by what are called audiencias. Audiencias could make laws, hear appeals against the decisions made by the viceroy. They could review the viceroy upon the conclusion of their time served. And the audiencias were located in 10 judicial divisions throughout the land, and they're often in charge of local government administration. So we're talking things like tax collection, carrying out the law, and assigning work under the MITA system. 
Now, we've talked about the Mita system before when we discussed it with the Inca Empire, but the Spanish are going to adopt it as well. If you recall, the Mita is a little bit different from the encomienda in the sense that labor is ordered by the government as opposed to the settlers themselves as it was in the encomienda. Spanish colonial bureaucracy is going to be managed by a group of people who are called letrados, and these letrados are university-educated lawyers who had trained in Spain. Now, talking about Portugal for, for a moment here, they have a very similar system. Uh, they, too, are going to have a ruler appointed by their monarch. In this case, they're going to be known as the governor general. But there are smaller governors who are in control of regions known as captaincies who could act independently of the governor general. Uh, Jesuit missionaries are also going to be in Portuguese Brazil. They're going to help convert natives. They're going to help raise money, which will construct schools and churches. And they'll do this through raising the money by farming and ranching. So within these European type cities in the Americas, life is going to feel, in fact, very European. Uh, Spanish is the official language of business and government, and churches are going to be abundant throughout these cities. However, traditional ways of life are going to persist in the surrounding countryside. Where Europeans did become involved in the countryside, they would establish what were called haciendas, or rural estates, which are going to be worked by native laborers, and these native laborers, of course, are going to generate wealth for these owners and help to establish these owners as the local aristocracy. Places located in the remote interior that don't have an abundance of precious metals or have geographic features that help keep them isolated, they do remain, in fact, culturally isolated from these larger patterns of change that are surrounding them. So we've got kind of the political structure out of the way. I want to turn our conversation to focus on colonial society. we got to keep in mind this historical moment is really unique in the sense that it brought together American native inhabitants with European settlers, mostly males, of course, and African slaves. And this results in the emergence of Spanish men establishing families with native women and giving birth to children who are going to be known racially as mestizos. Those with native blood were said to be part of what was called the Republic of the Indians, which is going to offer tribute to another republic called the Republic of the Spaniards, uh, or those people who had no native blood. Now, in order to keep native society, in order to keep American society differentiated, they're going to create the casta system. And in this society, you have at the top a class called the Peninsulares. These people are born on the Iberian Peninsula. So they are, they are Spanish or Portuguese born, and they're, both of their parents are Spanish or Portuguese themselves. They rank at the top of the social hierarchy, and they are followed by the class known as the Creoles. Now, the Creoles are going to be of purely Spanish blood, but they are born in the Americas. Below the Creoles, you then have the Mestizos, and the Mestizos are going to be a mix between European and native blood. And they are initially relegated to low standing in colonial society, but in time, their roles are going to become more significant. And so what the caste system is going to do is it's going to try to classify a degree of quote-unquote whiteness based upon how many generations one was separated from having a fully native ancestor. The further one got from the purely native ancestor, the more white one was considered. 
Below the mestizos are going to be people born of Spanish and African parents, known as mulattoes, and these children are going to be seen as even more socially inferior to the mestizos. Over time, this system, I'm sure you could imagine, becomes so ridiculously complex as more and more racial variations are produced. So they are going to get to the point where they have to create a series of paintings called the Casta Paintings, which are commissioned to basically help the Europeans delineate the racial differences that existed in the Americas. Native blood, it must be understood, is seen as a negative connotation, and it could ultimately shape one's future, but race wasn't always the sole determinant, especially as society grew increasingly mixed. Uh, the Creoles we're going to see over time, too, are going to grow increasingly sensitive to being perceived as being inferior to the Peninsulares simply due to the location where they were born. Turning our attention now to the economy of Latin America under European control, we've already talked about these haciendas, these large estates in the countryside. They are a feature of the colonial economy, but you've got to understand they're playing a minor role in comparison to the Spanish mining of silver and the Portuguese cultivation of sugar and later mining of gold. It's going to be these activities that ultimately drove the colonial economy. The industry you should most immediately identify with Spanish colonial Latin America is silver mining, for it was in the mines of what is called Potosi, which is located in modern-day Bolivia, where we find the largest silver deposit in the world, located within the mountain known as Cerro Rico, which is also known as, then in Spanish, Rich Mountain. Pretty straightforward for you. These mines are going to be worked by native miners using the Mita system, and the surrounding city of Potosi is going to grow to a city of 150,000 by 1,600. One-seventh of the surrounding native population is going to be sent into the silver mines annually to work for four months at a time. This work is, of course, physically difficult and dangerous, and in exchange, the workers are going to receive very little pay. That silver, which is being mined in the Americas, is not only going to alter the Spanish economy, but it is going to have a massive impact on the global economy as well. One-fifth of all silver mined there is going to be sent directly to the Spanish crown, and it's being immediately invested in building up military, financing a lot of wars being fought in the name of religion, as well as bureaucratic expansion in Spain. Other silver that comes into Europe is going to help acquire manufactured goods and other items in trade, as well as, span as serving the growing Spanish debt that's mounting as new business opportunities emerge in the Americas. Some of the silver is going to be going directly from the city of Acapulco in Mexico straight across the Pacific to Manila in the Philippines, and this trade route was known as the Manila Galleon. When it gets to the Philippines, it is being used to purchase luxury goods straight from the Asian markets. The galleons that would sail in the open waters would often have to sail in a, with a fleet of ships, and this was meant to protect the goods from being stolen by pirates along the way. As for Brazil, they do not have a massive deposit of silver that they can exploit. So what they have to do is they have to focus their energies on producing sugar. There's not a strong labor recruiting system in the Portuguese Americas, like the Encomienda or the Mida in Spain. And this is thanks in part to native avoidance and resistance to labor obligations, not to mention the, the population being decimated as a result of smallpox. Instead, these sugar plantations have to rely on a steady supply of African slave labor. 
The agricultural system that developed crystallized sugar, you have to understand, is so labor intensive and the climate of the region is extremely inhospitable as well. So in these conditions, death rates are much larger than birth rates, which is not the case in North America. And so there's a constant demand for new shipments of slaves across the Atlantic to meet the demands of the sugar industry. So long as you could have a slave live for five to six years, and this sounds so callous, but this is the way that it was thought of. If you had a slave live for five to six years, then the quote unquote investment paid itself off twofold. So what this did is it really incentivized not having your slaves live for all that long because if you think about it, if you have children being born into slavery, then what you are doing is you're taking someone out of work in order to raise that child until the age that they're old enough to actually do work. This is a really harsh and cold economic reality that lacks any kind of human empathy. But by the mid-1600s, competition in the sugar industry from the French and Dutch colonies, as well as the English in the Caribbean, led to diminishing profits for the Portuguese. So this led to a search for the next source of profit in Brazil, and where they were going to find a source of gold in the interior of the continent. So in 1695, Portuguese adventurers set out into the Brazilian interior and literally struck gold. The region became known as Minas Gerais, which means General Mines, and it's going to witness a gold rush, and it led to Brazil becoming one of the largest sources of gold in the world during the 18th century. This development led to increased settlement of the interior and also resulted then in more farming and ranching taking place in the region, which ultimately led to the further destruction of local ecosystems. What this also does, though, is it prolongs Portugal's success, which sounds like a good thing, and I guess in that time it was. But what it does is it also hampers the need to develop manufacturing, the need to diversify your economy, because you have this steady influx of gold coming from the new world, and it's just an easy stream of money coming in that forces you, or I should say doesn't force you to think about different ways to make money. So when that gold runs out, you don't kind of have a plan B. So finally, as, as we get into the 18th century in the Spanish Americas, we, we start to see a wave of reform taking place. And these reforms are going to be known as the Bourbon Reforms. In Europe, there's a war going on in 1702 called the War of Spanish Succession. Now, this breaks out when the King of Spain, Charles II, died without an heir. And several people are going to make a claim to inherit the throne, one of them being of the Bourbon family, therefore also a close relative of another Bourbon, King Louis XIV of France at that time. This war is going to result in a victory for the Bourbon claimant, and it meant that the ruler of France and the ruler of Spain were from the same family. So this new family is going to introduce a wave of reforms in the Americas. The Bourbon reforms were meant to take the government and make it more efficient, and also maintain Spain's role at the forefront of the global economy. So opponents to these reforms, if they existed, like the Jesuits of Spain, they are expelled from Spain and the Spanish Empire. Uh, you've got to understand that the reforming monarchs at this time, they are what are called enlightened despots, meaning they are ruling with absolute authority, as we've seen in earlier chapters, but they are enlightened in the sense that they are trying to rule using some of the principles of the Enlightenment 
that we've only really begun to scratch the surface of. Um, what we're going to really see uh, in terms of reform, tax systems are improved upon f- along French lines. More vice royalties are established in the Americas. The Creoles are going to be seen as some of the most corrupt individuals in the Americas. And we'll talk more specifically about that in a little bit. But their power is going to be reduced, and they're going to re- be replaced by a French system of intendants that was not typically staffed by the Creole class. Instead, it was being staffed by peninsulares who reported directly to the crown. Military efforts are also expanded at this time, as the Spanish had allied with the French during the Seven Years' War, and we're going to see a new militia that's going to be staffed by Creole officers. The government takes more of an active role in the economy. They start to establish some monopolies on things like tobacco and gunpowder. Also, mercantilist restrictions on trade start to loosen a bit. It allows for raw materials to be developed a lot more, more sugar production, coffee, tobacco. But it also results in increased competition on manufactured goods coming from Europe, which damages the profits of American manufactured good producers. Um, What we see as a result of these reforms are going to be the Creoles starting to grow increasingly dissatisfied with their position in society, but they're also kind of holding on to enough privilege to hold off any kind of large-scale Creole-led rebellion for now in this time period. All right, and now we're going to zoom in on one of the largest problems in a world history class during this historical era is when textbooks do not give a sense of historical agency. What we mean by that is a power for individuals to act for themselves in historical moments to the people who are being conquered by the Europeans. So I want to take a few minutes to talk about Tupac Amaro and his native Inca-inspired uprising against Spanish authorities in the 18th century. He's going to lead the rebellion, which included approximately 70,000 rebels and comprised of mostly natives, but some Creoles as well. Your book gives him one paragraph's worth of attention, which honestly is more to say than other books. But in doing so, even such little coverage makes it seem as if resistance is a side story to what really should be the center stage show of conquest, when in fact, Resistance and conquest go hand in hand throughout the entirety of this period. I think historian John Fisher sums up the middle of the 18th century really well in the Americas when he says, quote, hardly a year passed without disturbances in one or more of the provinces, which usually involved attacks upon district officials, end quote. So let's chat about Tupac Amaru for a bit. Colonial Peru is going to be run by local government officials that are called corregidores, and these corregidores are known, at least during the 18th century, as well as other time periods, as being people who are going to abuse their power through using the Mita system beyond what should have been legally acceptable, demanding tribute at a higher rate than what was allowed, and forcing the sale of goods upon mestizo populations at high prices, And in all of this, the mestizos are really unable to seek appropriate justice for these legal abuses. Now, this system is going to be ended by the Bourbon reforms, and it's going to be replaced by the intendance system mentioned earlier. But this happens primarily as a response to the rebellion started by Tupac Amaro. So Tupac Amaro is an an indigenous noble who served as a provincial chief. 
Uh, he claimed descent to the royal lines of the former Inca Empire as well. His rebellion is going to start with this illegal hanging, basically, of a corregidor. And it's going to quickly grow up to 6,000 followers who are going to start with a march on the old Inca capital of Cusco. Within a month and a half, Spanish forces are pushed back and the rebels are just outside of Cusco. Tupac Amaro is going to make a big mistake when he attempts to reason with the leaders in the city. And he also has the belief that the Spanish government could itself be reformed within its own means as opposed to being toppled and replaced by an altogether different government. So eventually, Spanish reinforcements are going to come within two months, and they start to claim victories against these lesser experienced rebels. And within six months from the start of the rebellion, Tupac Amaru's captured, tortured, forced to watch his entire family be executed. Finally, he himself will be executed, first with his tongue being cut out, and then his eventual beheading. Pretty brutal stuff. And the rebellion is going to continue on for two more years before there's going to be at least a temporary agreement between the two sides to cease hostility. But many rebels shortly thereafter will be captured and they'll be banished from the colony or they'll be altogether executed. However, several years later, the system of Corregidoras and the abuses which made it notorious and drew the ire of Tupac Amaru were all outlawed and replaced by a more professionalized system. If we remove Tupac Amaru's story from the narrative of Spanish colonial reform, we ultimately do a disservice to history because then it seems as if the Spanish just realized all on their own their own problems with their administration without someone having taken drastic action to force their hand as Tupac Amaru and his supporters actually had done. For the explainer of this episode, I want to talk about the Catholic Church and its centrality in all features of colonial Spanish society. This is something we should not and cannot ignore. There's a belief among the Spanish that native populations should be converted to Christianity upon conquest. Now, when this happened, it was often through a process of syncretism where, among the natives, new Catholic beliefs are merged with native beliefs and traditions. For example, Catholic saints who possessed similar qualities to gods they had previously worshipped received more attention because the natives felt they were able to honor both through worship. Also, the Virgin of Guadalupe became very popular among the peasants of Mexico in the 16th and 17th centuries after her shrine was bringing in pilgrims from all over Latin America who believed visiting it would help to work miracles on their behalf. She also, if you ever look at images of her, and I'll try to include one in the blog post, she has an appearance that makes her look more native, and it seems to serve the interests of the mestizo population above all else. Another great example of testifying to the blending of Christian and indigenous cultures is a painting called The Virgin of the Mountain of Potosi. I'll definitely have included this image in the blog, so please check it out, because what you'll see is the Virgin Mary combined with the Cerro Rico in Potosi, the site of that massive silver mine we had previously discussed. This painting is believed to be symbolic of the thanks the Spanish had for God and their patrons because as a result of those two things, in their view, the mountain became extremely bountiful in its supply of silver. 
It's also believed the mountains represented the Earth Mother in the Andean world, and so merging Mary with the Cerro Rico, which had been worshipped by the indigenous people, is seen as another example of merging Catholicism with native religious traditions in that thing that we call syncretism. Now, beyond blending with native beliefs, Christian influence came to stretch into the political and social realms as well. The Catholic clergy will help shape Spanish law and policy in the Americas. They helped to establish schools that educated children of the nobility. Spanish missionaries are also going to work to document the lives of the natives. And that's going to help the Spanish authorities and other Catholic missionaries learn more about the people in order to better understand them and learn how to go about the process of converting them to Christianity. Catholic churches in the Americas also represented kind of the cultural centerpiece of these communities with their artistic features kind of matching the trends of Europe during that time. And finally, my recommendation for this episode is going to be, yes, another podcast, but it's a shorter podcast. It's from uh, the University of Texas at Austin, who does a series called 15-Minute History. And this episode argues basically globalization, which is typically a process we identify with the 20th century in world history, actually, as argued here, began in 1571 when the city of Manila was established under Spanish authority. And this obviously leads to those Manila galleons sailing from Acapulco across the Pacific into Manila, where it would pick up Asian goods for the European markets. What this episode does a really good job of, though, is it introduces how central the Chinese were to facilitating this first globalized market. So it kind of reviews what we've talked about in this episode, but also kind of previews how China fits into this historical puzzle as well. So yeah, give it a listen if you guys can. All right, I'm done. I ran over the limit. Uh, I knew I was going to, so there you have it. Have a good one. I'll talk to everyone soon. Take care, everybody. Bye.